Good morning, church. What a wonderful day. I love baptisms, but I have to admit they get you flustered. It's a, just a different change. And on top of that, my tablet died on me this morning, so I'm on paper notes like old school around here. Just little things throw you off. Thankful we have a, a God that's always a solid rock, right? He's always there. He never changes because the smallest things seem to throw us out of whack. If you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of James in the New Testament, James chapter 3. James chapter 3. We're going to finish a message that we began last week on this concept of a faith that demonstrates godly wisdom. And centered in our text today is this concept that there are two types of wisdom. There is godly wisdom, which comes from above, James says, heavenly wisdom. And there is worldly wisdom, which James says does not come from above, but is uh, fleshly, natural, and demonic. He doesn't hold back. And these two things are opposing each other, and we find ourselves caught in the tension between these two types of wisdom, between how we orient our life. And the point that James is trying to make as we look at this text today is that genuine faith, an individual who has genuine faith, should also demonstrate in the way that they interact with others and the relationships that they have godly wisdom. So the point of it is, is that you should be able to look at an individual and the way that they hold themselves, the way that they hold their relationships. Is there a constant struggle and strife that they're bringing into relationships? Or is there a, a sense of peace and joy and love? You see, these things are uh, evident, aren't they? And what James is saying is for individuals who proclaim that they have genuine faith, this whole section that we've been looking at, it, it, James is, is summed up with him saying, uh, faith without works is dead. The idea is that if you say you have faith, then your life should demonstrate that very faith that you proclaim. It's not a new concept. Nobody likes a phony, right? It's easy to spot a phony. Kids are, um, I, I call kids hypocrisy detectors. Right? I get in trouble all the time with my kids. Dad, you say this, but why are you doing this? Oh. <laughs> Adults, we kind of let it go. We put it off because we know we do the same thing. Kids are like, why? why? You know, you tell me to do this, but do we have a faith that is genuine? And can that genuineness be seen? throughout our life, in our actions, in the things that we do. That's the center of this text. That's the center, really, of this whole text of James. Let me ask you a question as, as we begin that kind of relates to this. What comes to your mind when you think of Jesus? What comes to your mind? How you would answer that question, the thoughts that would fill your mind, say a lot about you. It would, in fact, define you in many ways. It would define your actions. It can define your eternity. Many hear of Jesus and they openly reject Him. They openly mock Him. Perhaps they are convinced that there is another way or that there is no God. 
And they're brazen enough to, to boldly tell you that they would reject Him. Perhaps they live their life bitter against God. You know, it, it, never, it, it always amazes me, people who proclaim to be atheists and always want to argue with you about the God that they say doesn't exist. There's a bitterness there for so many. But you know, what happens most of the time is, is not this open rejection of Christ. What happens, especially in our culture here, in the southern United States, again, I'm, I've told you I'm trying to identify Florida because we're south, but not south. You know, it's not quite Bible Belt. We're below it. We're the Bible trousers, I guess. I don't know. Uh, maybe one leg. If you look at Florida, never mind. This is, this is going downhill fast. But the point is, is we live in a culture where few would be honest enough to, to absolutely reject Jesus, to tell you, I, I don't like him. I don't think he's good. I don't believe in him. I don't trust him. I want nothing to do with him. In fact, most would say, uh, Jesus is just all right. <laughs> he's okay. They like the idea of salvation. They like the idea of forgiveness. He seems like a pretty good guy. Perhaps even at some time they were involved in a church. At, at some point, maybe they've made some kind of a, a profession. Maybe at, at one time there was an excitement in their life, but it's gone. And replacing it is a dull emptiness to the things of Christ. There is no passion. There is no desire. There is no love. In fact, the only time that they would think about Christ would be Easter, Christmas, and any time something goes wrong. Right? That's how most would regard Christ. And, and so we see this hypocrisy. Would they live for Jesus? No. Would they attempt to serve Jesus? N no. There would be no reason for that. Would their life reflect a life that, that the Lord is in? No. You could look at their actions, their intentions, their desires, and you could see that it is a life that is ran by what James will say is worldly wisdom. It's all about me. It's all about me. I'm number one. Look out for number one. Dog eat dog world. I'm going to be the dog on top. And we have this kind of uh, intention in the back of our mind that is a base of how we define ourselves and we define our world. If Christ is not at the center of your world, if, if your life does not live, if you don't live your life to glorify God, to want to obey the things of God, to love Him, to put Him first, then you put yourself first. And for most people, even most people who would claim some kind of familiarity with Christ, this is the center of their life that revolves around them. In fact, I meet many people who their idea of Jesus is, I want a Jesus that will make me happy. I want a Jesus that will give me all the good things that I want in life. I want a Jesus that says I'm great and I'm good, because that's how I think about myself. And friends, we've got to be careful as we proclaim the gospel that we don't go to individuals and go, you're great and God loves you. There's a truth there. But if that's all we leave, they walk away around going, yeah, I know I'm great. And that's good that God loves me because, you know what, I love me too. We have this ingrained selfishness that's part of our sinful nature. 
And so our passage today at its heart deals with you at your root. Are you a person who lives to glorify God? Or are you a person who lives for you? What's at the root? What's at the heart? We're going to get this. We're gonna, the Bible's going to be an axe today, and it's going to cut us to the core. Because it matters. The intentions in which we do everything matters at what the root is. Are we doing it for the Lord, or are we doing it for ourselves? So if you would, take your copy of God's Word, James chapter 3. We're going to read verses 3 through 18, or 13 through 18, sorry. This is God's Word. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, see the quotes, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, we looked at this text last week, and we focused on these attributes of, of what godly wisdom has. So today, I want to kind of overview it. We're going to review those quickly, but I want, us to, I want us to go on and get to the point at the very end in verse 18 that he makes here, that peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So to begin our text, we see James has talked about selfishness and um, ambition, jealousy, envy, these, these attributes that he lists here. He's talked about them throughout his book. Um, envy and selfish ambition leads to sin and temptation. In, in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says, But each person who is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires, by his own selfishness, by his own selfish ambition, by his own envy, by his own lust, by the things that I want, I want, I want, I don't care what the consequences are. Okay, we, we see that there. In verse 27, James says that pure faith or religion, as he calls it here, it, that it acts selfishly. He gives this example in verse 27 of chapter 1. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And again, we've looked at this a few times. And yes, the idea of, of visiting or, orphans, video, visiting widows, helping them is still important, but that's not the only thing that he's trying to get across here. What he's saying is, when you take the time out of your day, when you set aside time to go and minister to those who cannot pay you back, those who cannot do anything for you, for the lowest people in the social order at that day, people that had nothing. When you want to go and serve those who can't serve you back, that's true religion. It goes a lot with what he's saying here about selfish ambition, 
envy being the root of worldly wisdom. It's not worldly wisdom to go and spend your time, your effort, your resources on someone who can in no way advance you unless you can take a picture of it and put it on Facebook and have everybody see how great you are, right? That's, that's the way we've turned this now, that even good things, we do it in a way so that others can, can talk about how great we are and stroke our egos, in, in chapter 2, verse 12, you can't be selfish and merciful at the same time. You can't want what's just for me and also be merciful, not, not, not exact righteousness on someone else. Take mercy, take pity on someone else. Verses, verse 12 and 13 says, So speak and act as those who are being judged under the law of liberty for judgment without mercy to one who has shown... Who, to, to, Without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We are to be a merciful people. We love the fact that God has shown us mercy for our sins. And yet we want to be so selfish that we want to pick out everybody's sin and push on it. See what you did? James says we, we love mercy. We love that God has been merciful to us. We should live as those who know and love mercy and be merciful to others as well. Selfish ambition leads to unqualified individuals desiring the position of a teacher. Chapter 3, verse 1, we looked at uh, a couple of weeks ago, starts off and says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. The idea and the point here is that those individuals who are not qualified to, to hold the position of authority within the church and are desiring to do so. They're desiring to do so. Why? Because they want to look important. They want to be the person up front. They want to be the person that tells others. They want the, to be the person that everybody comes to and says, well, what do I do? What do I do? And James puts that in perspective too. He says, you, for you know that those who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. It's not something to play with. It matters. You could almost say preaching and teaching the Word of God is one of the most dangerous occupations in the world, couldn't you? There is a spiritual responsibility where we will be judged by a greater strictness. And so this idea of selfishness, this idea of envy, this, is, this, this, this comes through in many places through James. And so James is going to call it out here and he's comparing again godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. And so the first thing that we looked at last week was that genuine faith demonstrates godly wisdom. And we see this in verses 13 and 17. James says in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Who is the wise one? And the one who should respond, James says, let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. So who are the ones that are truly wise? James says those who live their lives humbly, that exude God's wisdom in all that they do. Those are the ones that he, that he comes at. Look, these words here, humility, um, it might be gentleness or meekness in your Bible. This is an interesting word. We think of, we, you, we hear the word meek and we think weak. We hear the word gentle, we think, we think powerless, weak. That's not the idea that this word has. This word in the Greek was also used to describe a tamed horse. 
something that has great power, but is under control. Something that has great power, but is under control. It is used of our lives when we submit our lives and our wills to the Word of God. So that in everything, we come under control, under the authority of God. This word meekness, this, this gentleness, um, this word is used of Moses in the Old Testament. Yet Moses was a very powerful figure. He was a man that stood before Pharaoh and said, let my people go. He commanded a great many individuals. He was one of the greatest leaders the world has ever seen. Secular people write books about leadership, and you know who they exemplify? Moses. There's many of them that exemplify Moses because he was such a great leader. He was a powerful man, but he was described himself as meek because he was under the control of God. Jesus is also says this about himself. In Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus was extremely powerful, and yet when he came to earth, when he came as a man, he suffered as a man, he lived as a man, he experienced the things that we experience. Jesus was real. He experienced hunger. He experienced tiredness. You know, all of these emotions, all of these feelings, all of these bodily things he experienced, yet he did it without sin. He was described as meek, and yet he goes into the temple, takes cords and makes a whip and drives off the money changers. He calls out the religious leaders, the most important people of the society. He calls them out. He says, you brood of vipers. Your mothers are snakes. Okay? He was very powerful. And so this is the idea of this meekness. It doesn't mean that, that we're passive and we're whiny and we're weak. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that we are humble, that we make this choice to be controlled. We make this choice to yield to others. We make this choice to yield for the will of God in our lives. So the first thing that we see is that genuine faith demonstrates godly wisdom. And we saw these characteristics. I'm going to go through it real quick because this was most of our sermon last week. The characteristics of godly wisdom, what does it look like in our life? James says that it is first pure. It's first pure. It's pure in its source. It, it's wisdom that comes from God's word. It's wisdom that comes from God. It's pure in its intentions. We, we exhibit this wisdom in a way not to try to, not to try to better ourselves against others, but that we want them to be pure as well. We, it's pure in intentions. It's pure in source. It says first pure. It, it, I love how it says it's first pure, then peaceable. Then peaceable. True wisdom from God does not try to stir up fights and envy and arguments over every subject. It's first pure, then it's peaceable. It knows what hills to die on, and it knows what's not worth giving blood. Do you got that? It knows where we should stand firm. And in other matters, it says, different is okay. Different is just different. It's first pure, second peaceable. It says that it is gentle. This was a very complex word. It, it means uh, considerate, uh, able to yield. It is, it is a trait that says, 
It's okay. I don't have to be right here. I don't have to look great here. I want to let someone else take that position. I want to help build up others. It's reasonable or submissive. It's able to listen to other opinions. It's able to love people from different backgrounds, from different traditions. It's able to look at different perspectives. But yet it still remains pure. Godly wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It doesn't always have to be right. It doesn't always have to exact judgment. It doesn't have to look at everybody and point out what's wrong in their life. What did they do wrong? What did you do wrong? But it still remains pure. Do you see this? I love how he says first pure. Godly wisdom is impartial. It's it's not trying to set yourself up better than someone else. It's not trying to use godly wisdom to get ahead of someone else. It's not trying to say, look how smart I am. Look how great I know the Bible. Look at at all that God has done in my life to bless me and not you. It's not godly wisdom. And last, godly wisdom is sincere. It's not hypocritical. It's not fake. It doesn't set a fakeness over itself or, or a pretentiousness about itself these are the attributes of godly wisdom do we see these in our lives do we see these in our church so godly wisdom should show these things the second thing that we see in our text in verses 14 through 16 is that genuine faith genuine faith it demonstrates godly wisdom but it deters worldly wisdom and i just love how in the bible it has quotes around wisdom you know so-called air quotes wisdom right this, this natural wisdom, this worldly wisdom. So let's look at these attributes that are listed here in verses 14 through 16. The first thing that we should point out is that genuine faith deters the worldly wisdom of bitter envy and selfish ambition or jealousy and selfish ambition. And it's interesting here in this text, James mentions these two attributes twice in verses 14 and 16. He both talks about bitter envy or jealousy and selfish ambition. And in verse 14, he even adds in your heart. See, these are root things inside of us. These are issues that often we don't even really realize until we give ourselves a heart check. Till we stop and we say, why do I do the things that I do? What is at the core? What is at the root? Let's think about these words that he says here. First is, is this, this motivation of bitter envy. Of bitter envy. Do you go around saying, I'm just as good as that person? Why don't I have those things? Why, why can't I have what they have? I'm, I'm just as good as them. I'm, I'm, in fact, probably even better. You know what I did? We all do this. We live in a world that tells us we should desire this, okay? I, I, I saw a picture. I don't even know how I saw this on the Internet, but it, it had, a, it had a, like a Porsche 911, and, it, and, and, and it's in a dealership. And on the front it says, if, if, if you don't deserve it, who does? And I'm thinking the person that has $100,000 to put it on a car. But... Um, the world tells us you deserve this. You're good enough for this. You should, you should do this. You should buy this. You should have this. Because you're good enough. 
And don't think that it doesn't have an influence in our heart that then when we see the people that have those things, that we go, why can't I? And it will cause us to act bitterly against others. It will taint our motivations for what we do. I know many individuals that go through slumps, genuine Christians that go through slumps and hard periods with God himself because he said, they say, God, why can't I have that? Why didn't you bless me like you blessed them? This envy, this jealousy that can just be at the root of our life. I deserve this. Why can't I have it? I'm as good as them. It's interesting here that James adds this word. He modifies it and says bitter envy, bitter jealousy. Because it is a bitterness in our heart, isn't it? When these attributes creep in, they taint everything. We look at others, and the first thing we do is judge them. Oh, well, did you see what they drove to church? Can you believe what he's wearing? Who does he think he is? Everybody sees right through that. It's a root problem. It's in our heart, James says. Second thing here is this idea of selfish ambition. This selfish ambition. Why is it that you do the things that you do? Again, worldly wisdom tells us you are number one. You do anything you can to set yourself apart, even if it is at the expense of others, because you are the greatest thing that was ever put on this earth. And we believe that. And we live our lives like that. That is the root of worldly wisdom, that you are the greatest thing. It's all about you. It's interesting here, ambition itself is not necessarily wrong. Notice how he frames a selfish ambition. Ambition is not wrong, okay? Um, we, if we're living for the right things, amb- ambition's not wrong. We should want to be ambitious that the glory of God be known throughout the earth. We were told in the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. We should want to try to accomplish these things. We should want to love others. We should want to be able to be generous. We should want our family to be safe. We should want our family to be provided for. We should want to take care of each other within the church and to love and to pray for each other. Ambition is not wrong, but when your ambition is self-centered on you and how can I get ahead... It begins to taint everything. Again, the things that we, uh, that we do that are good, we even do them with the wrong motivation if our lives are centered in this worldly wisdom of selfish ambition. The, the, the second attribute here is that worldly wisdom is arrogant. It is proud. It is boastful. And friends, we live in a world where, where this kind of pride, this brazenness, is celebrated. Um, I see, I see, seven, ten-year-old kids when I'm out at baseball that that walk around like they are the greatest thing in the world because they catch like three out of ten balls. <laughs> I mean, we, we we live in a world where it's where it's all about building yourself up and, and self-promotion and and getting a platform and look how great I am and how good I am and overcompensating for ourselves. The Bible says this kind of an attitude doesn't demonstrate godly wisdom that's humble, that's meek, that looks out for others, 
that, that wants to love and, and better others, that wants to serve Christ, that makes, wants to make Christ known greatly, not yourself. There is a difference. Uh, we, see this, we see this humility all the time. In fact, I mean, now we have this idea of false humility all the time. Anybody heard of the humble brag, right? Where you like try to make yourself look humble, but you're bragging as you do it. This is, this is I think, why the internet was made. Um, so so let, me give you a, a, let me give you an example of a humble brag here. Um, your, your inflatable inner tube is so much cooler than my 80-foot super yacht. I mean, you get to be so much closer to the water and nature. I really envy you. Okay? That's the idea of the humble brag. Okay? And it happens in the church, too. We, we, we do this also. Man, I'm so glad that you kept the nursery. You, you, you do a great job in there. You know, it's really hard. I need, I need lots of time. It's really hard to study to teach adults. We do these backhanded brags all the time. That's not godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is truly humble. It's truly humble. Paul says that knowledge puffs up. We, we need to be careful I want us to know the Word of God. I want us, I want us to be students of the Word of God. I, 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 my, my desire and my goal is to train this church like I would train a seminary classroom. If you come on Sunday nights, we're doing stuff that is, that is what they do in seminary is what we're looking at. You know, what is church history? What is theology? What do we believe? How do we apply it? I, I, I'm not going to dumb it down. But at the same time, we need to receive these things with, with humility and, and understand wisdom and purity and, and where do I, what's the hill to die on and what do I not need to give blood about? Because I don't want us to be a bunch of arrogant snobs with the word of truth. I don't want that knowledge to puff up. So, it's not, so, so worldly wisdom is arrogant where godly wisdom is humble. Worldly wisdom is false it, it lies against the truth. And, and so the idea here is that, that the person who, is, who, ha, who lives their life that's motivated by jealousy, envy, uh, personal ambition, he, he, he lives his life, he goes around telling others about how great he is, maybe he's a false teacher in our context, okay? And he goes around and he's, he's I'm so great, I'm so good, you're just not nearly at the level that I am because I have such a close walk with God and know his word so well. The funny thing is, James says, that's an absolute lie against the message that you're trying to proclaim. That's why it's so insidious when it gets into the church. When we walk around as goody-two-shoes, better than everybody else, looking on, on, on things of this world, trying to judge everyone, line them up, and put ourselves better, that we're somehow closer to God or love Him more, or that He loves us more, and then we go around and we proclaim a gospel to everybody that says, whoever you are, whatever you've done, I don't care what it is, Jesus Christ died that you can be saved. Do you see how it lies against the truth? That's the truth. But if we live our lives saying, I'm so much better than you and God loves me more, we're lying against the very central message of the church about what Christ gave as the gospel himself. Instead, we should live our lives saying, I am a sinner saved by grace. God has brought me way further than I ever imagined. I'm way further than when I began. But I know I still have a long ways to go. I want to walk with you. I want to see Him change your life as well. What if we took that kind of attitude with people? What if we thought about ourselves in that way? It would change everything, wouldn't it? It would change everything. 
It lies against the truth. The fourth attribute here is it says that worldly wisdom is earthly, natural, and demonic. Here's the source of it. James, James doesn't bat around and say, oh, you know, it, it's okay. I know, you're, I know you're trying to help this and get a little better. No, he, he goes right for the juggler here. He says it's earthly. It is, it is a perspective that does not look to God and his word and his truth. It is natural. That is opposed to the spiritual realm, what, what God's doing through the Holy Spirit. It's, it's the idea that it is natural to us that we're sinners and so that's why we would operate in such a way that it's all about me. How do I get ahead more? And then he finally points to the ultimate source. It is demonic. It is absolutely opposed to God. If you can walk out of here and think that you're okay to walk around and act this way, Everything you do lies against the truth. Look what it leads to. Verse, the, 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 the fifth attribute here, it says that it results in chaos and evil works. And this is easy to realize. If everybody's running around worrying about what's best for me, everything's going to fall apart. There are individuals right now, perhaps in this very church, and your marriage, your family life, your relationships are falling apart because everybody involved in it is worried about what's best for me. It's wrong. We can't live relationships that way. You will never be happy with another individual except for yourself if you live that way. We have to yield. We have to exhibit humility. We have to exhibit godly wisdom if we want fruitful relationships. And that's the the final conclusion here. The third thing that we see here is that godly wisdom develops peace and cultivates, develops and cultivates peace with deliberate effort. Look at verse 18. It reads, and a harvest of righteousness is sown by peace to those who make peace. The point here is simple. You sow what you reap. If you reap, if you sow selfish ambition and, and jealousy and pride and envy into your relationships and how you work with others, then you're not going to get peace. Does that make sense? But if you're humble, if you're willing to say, this, uh, you stay pure but also be peaceable, to say, this is something to die on, this I don't want to give my blood for. If you're willing to, to say, you know what? It's okay. You, you lead this. You do this. I don't have to be the sinner. I don't have to get the glory for this. You will find that it reaps peace. As I read this passage from being here at this church, I would say this is one of the greatest, uh, greatest pieces of the legacy of Ray Johnson. 33 years as the pastor of this church and from the stories I've heard when he came, this church had all kinds of bitterness. It was a good place, good people, but things had happened and everybody was upset. And now today we do have a a church that loves peace. A church that wants to go together and wants to do things, that wants to be led. And he gave a lot of blood. to do that. And many of you know that. Many of you know the stories. Brother, it was hard work, wasn't it? It was a long time and it was hard work. And that's what it says here is that if you want to, if you want a harvest of peace and righteousness, you got to put in the work. 
No farmer walks out to the field and goes one day, Oh, look, I got a crop of beans. Okay, he was out there months before tilling the ground, amending the soil, breaking it up, getting it ready, putting in fertilizer. You know, farmers spend years tending their field so that they produce the best harvest. They know what they planted last year. So this year we'll do this. I use this kind of fertilizer, this kind of seed, this kind of, uh, uh, of thing. So this year I'm going to use these. It is intentional. And so when they sow in righteousness, when you, if you want to reap righteousness, if you want to reap peace, you had better sow it in intentionally. Friends, we need lives that exhibit godly wisdom. We need to live that here in our church. We need to live that in our homes. I don't know what it is right now, but I would imagine that many of you would say, I have relationships that are broken and busted, and lots of it has to do with my fault. Start today. Be humble enough to go to that person, to go to that individual and say, will you forgive me? I know I did this wrong. Can you do that? That's godly wisdom. In fact, the ultimate show of godly wisdom is that in our hearts, in our lives, we can come to God and say, I've sinned against you. I've done wrong. Would you forgive me? I want to trust in Christ. You see, those are humble statements. The gospel is a, is a very humble act for us to come to ourselves, to come to our end and realize I need Christ because when I lived my life according to me, I've messed it up. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to follow him? Are you willing to make much of Christ? Are you willing to base your life upon him and his glory? We're going to have an invitation. And I want to invite you, perhaps again, you, you want to come forward. There's something that the Lord has placed on your heart. And you want to come forward and, and pray or perhaps talk with me. I'd be willing to do that. But you don't have to come forward. If the Lord has put on your heart a relationship, a person, something, I want you to respond to Him. Respond even now that commit to do that, then commit to show godly wisdom in your life. Would you pray with me? Father.